Father, that is so powerful because it's the truth that no one in this room can ever outrun the father running down the driveway to meet the prodigal. And when the prodigal's running away, the father will always run. It's the only time in the scriptures we see God in a hurry is running toward the lost child. And uh, it's an amazing thing because shame would keep us away from you, but you've taken that all away. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. The thing that could have kept us away from you no longer has potency because you took all our shame. You took it upon yourself. It got buried in the ground and anew was raised. And we are raised with you. So today, for someone who's in this room living in covering, living in mask wearing, living in shame, afraid that if my worst is seen, I won't be loved. There is a love that they cannot outrun. And I pray that they've met that love this morning anew. We pray in Christ. Amen. Have a seat, everybody. Let's thank the team for leading us. That's a really powerful stuff. Wow, what a cute stage manager I have today. <laughs> and she's mad at me that I just did that to her. <laughs> That's a father's prerogative right there, you know, to brag on his children. Yeah. Um, it's really, like right now I'm doing, so many neat things are opening up with Players Box. So right now I'm getting to train uh, a number of football players, preparing them for the draft. And uh, some of that, like one of them's from Serbia, and one of them's from London, and we're doing this with Athletes in Action, and uh, just last week I got to tell them, you guys, do you know what the final frontier of human performance is? It's love. Like pretty much we've tapped out the body, but the capacity of the body to be unleashed at another level because it has experienced a love like no other and then through that, that performance gets fleshed out. There's nothing more powerful than someone's on a field or a court because they love. And uh, uh, just this series that we're in, it's, it's why Jesus did not come to improve religion. He came to end it so that he could start something that was utterly better than law. And that was love. Law got us to a certain place. That's what the scriptures tell us. Law was like our tutor, our nanny, who got us to school so we could meet the teacher. That's literally what Galatians 4 says about the law. It was our tutor. It was our pedagogos is the word, to get us to Christ. And now there's something better than law. And that's what we're in this series is Jesus unleashes his vision upon humanity. And I... I got to tell you, you know, the one thing about today's subject matter as we get to Matthew 6 is today's subject matter shows how dangerous a position you're in right now. You, look at your seat. Everybody look at their seat. That's a church seat. That's a dangerous place to sit because that seat has been known to turn people into fakes, right? There's nothing more appalling than religious fakes invasions as bad as what's happening in Ukraine have happened in the name of religion. And it's just, when you think about what's going on right now, think about good Christians doing this 
in the past to other non-believing pagans. Why? In the name of religion. When Christ's message is prostituted in a way that distorts it. You see, heresy is always truth taken to an extreme, distorted. And that's why a church is a really dangerous place to be because you could become religious. One of the things that we do around here is to just say things just so we keep this from being a, 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 non, from being a religious place. Because it's so easy to happen. I had a dear friend who's been in recovery for 30 years tell me this week. He was, you know, he was in Las Vegas uh, many times doing business. And he said, if you want to watch an amateur sin, go to Las Vegas. He said, but if you want to watch a professional sin, go to church. And just like, that one will rattle your cage. Because he's right. Um, one of the aspects of Jesus that was so appealing was how authentic he was. And so he comes to his apprentices and he says these words. We looked at these last week. For I tell you, this is the core hook verse, Matthew 5.20 of the Sermon on the Mount, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will not enter into the realm of God's rule over your life. That's what that means. The kingdom of heaven is the effective range of God's rule. So if, in, unless you're willing to take this beyond systemic application and go to where it's the core of your being that is now being fleshed out, you're really not in the, the rule of God. And as you know, last week we looked at this word in depth. It's the key word. It's one of the most important words you'll ever learn in the New Testament. It's used many times. It was actually a Greek word that was used by Plato and Aristotle. Like a lot of words we think of as religious. It wasn't religious. It was, the, it was dikaiousine. And remember, OSU is right in the middle of righteousness, okay? Just remember that. Is the condition the human soul must be in for the human being to live well and do what is right and best. It is a true inner goodness. And you've known people like this. In, in God's common grace, some people are born with this uh, to some extent. They're, they're born with a goodness. Don't, don't those people make you sick that are born that way? Uh, but, but through Christ, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as dikaiousine. That when you believe in Christ, not I believe in he, he exists, but I believe in him like I believe my stockbroker. I believe he knows what is best. When you trust in him in that way, there is this goodness that'll start flooding into your life. And he says, to follow me, it means you take that step beyond religious external behavior modification and sin management. Um, then he says this. Be careful not to practice your dikaiousine in front of others to be seen by them. In other words, now, be careful. The intent may be because the human affliction of addiction to approval of others, one of the things you're going to have to battle and be aware of is the tendency to let other people know of your righteousness. Now, this is really interesting. This is all about intent because we saw earlier in Matthew 5 where he said, do your good deeds in such a way that you that other people see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. He's not saying never let people see you doing good. He's saying, let's go to the heart. Why do you need to be seen? 
Why? Why do you need the affirmation of other people so much? He says, if you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. That's essentially saying, if you work for X company, don't, don't expect to get your paycheck from Y company. If you're working for people to get their approval, why are you expecting a paycheck from God? No, 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 it doesn't work that way. So when you give to the needy, notice he says when, not if. Don't announce it with trumpets. Da, 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 da. But use push pay. <laughs> Get that in there. Was that not the slyest appeal to an offering that you've ever heard? Do you see how easily we can become play actors? That's what the word hypocrites means. It was Jesus grew up in uh, Nazareth, which was close to Sepphoris, and I've been to the theater at Sepphoris that probably Joseph and Jesus helped build. It was built around the time Jesus would have been a young boy, and, and Jesus would have watched the play actors, the Hippocrates, the mask wearers. He says, don't be like that, because these religious leaders, that's what they do in the synagogues, on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing and so that your giving may be in secret. Now, it's really interesting. If you try not to let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, what are you going to be doing? You're going to be conscious of it. So this is not literally, you can't do that. Like, it's, it's the old Bill Cosby routine. God bless Bill Cosby. Uh, you can't use Bill Cosby stories anymore, but it's so good. Remember, he used to talk about uh, the, 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 the pink elephant. Don't think about pink elephants. Don't think about, and once you do, you become aware of pink elephants, haven't you? You have. And wh what does he say here? He says, this is to be an unconscious thing. It's who you are. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love standing in the... To pray standing in the synagogues, on the street corners, to be seen by others. Should I tell you, they've received their reward in full. Again, it's not don't ever let someone see you pray. It's is, is, do, you, do you posture to show people how spiritual you are? But when you pray, go to your room, close the door, pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't keep on babbling. The, the religious leaders were known to just pray lengthy prayers just to show how spiritual they were. For they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And of all the things that the Lord's Prayer is, one of the things we often miss is its simplicity, right? When you pray, say, Our Father who fills the space around us, who's close and far away both, we set your name apart, your rule come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today what we need. Forgive us of our indebtedness to you, but make us gracious to other people and, and lead us out of the temptation that's before us all the time. Deliver us from the, the traps and the deceptions of the evil one. And then he says, this, this is so important that you get this. Notice he hooks this back into that if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. In other words, if you're just religious and you pray, but you're not a forgiving person, you're not going to activate the grace of God in your own life. That you're stopping up the grace of God. For grace to have its power, it has to flow out, doesn't it? It has to flow out. Or there's no, no room for it to come in. Now, then he says, one last illustration, when you fast, notice he doesn't say if, he says when. Fasting is the intentional act of withdrawing for the purpose of focusing. 
it's almost always associated with food, but it doesn't have to be food. It can be social media. It can be television. It can be a lot of different things. But when you fast, in that day, it was pulling away from food for a time so that you can focus. One of the things that would be good to do in coming days is to fast a meal, if your doctor allows you to do this, so that you can focus on Ukraine. Because when you're hungry, you feel the pain a little bit. Don't look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Have you ever known someone who just, yeah, I'm so spiritual, you know? And there's some movements of religion, there, there is this, you can't be too much jo- have too much joy. It's like there's an unspirituality of being too joyful. Truly, I tell you, they receive their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head. Wash your face. This is the Maybelline verse. Wear makeup so that it will not be obvious to others that you're fasting, but only your father who's unseen, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Three illustrations of the same thing. He's not setting us another law. He's saying, look to the core intention of your soul. Why do you do what you do spiritually? He is showing us how dangerous it is to sit in a church building, to sit in a church assembly. Because it can easily become a performance. The majority of people live in the bondage of approval addiction. And notice the capital letters. Being in a religious community will only make it worse. If you have an approval addiction... You are like a drunk sitting at a bar right now. You really are. This is, this is spiritually hazardous, what many of you do on a regular basis, and that is you are a church attender. Somebody made a list of the, the characteristics of approval addiction. If we find ourselves getting hurt by what others say about us, by people expressing other than glowing opinions about us, we probably have approval addiction. If we habitually compare ourselves with other people, if we find ourselves getting competitive in the most ordinary of situations, we probably have approval addiction. If we live with a nagging sense we are not important enough or special enough, or we get envious of another's success, we probably have approval addiction. If we keep trying to impress important people, we probably have approval addiction. If we're worried that someone might think less of us should he or she find out we have an approval addiction, we probably have an approval addiction. And like other addicts, we'll go to great lengths to get our fix, won't we? And often, church is what exacerbates this Henry Nouwen put it well, at issue here is the question, to whom do I belong, to God or to the world? What is, what, what is my motivation? What is my core being? And this is constantly what Jesus is getting at. Do you belong to me? Do you belong to the world? Are you in the kingdom of the heavens, meaning you want to be ruled by that kingdom and subject to and accountable to that kingdom, not to the whims of people's approvals and, and, and affirmations? And I would venture to say that many of us struggle with this, and we're constantly wrestling with the tension of this. I can't remember who it was that came up with this, but this is a little altered continuum of what religion does and where we get stuck. So the whole intention of our lives in Christ is what Jesus is saying in Matthew 6, 1 to 18, is he's he's saying, I want you to grow to the extent that goodness flows out of you unconsciously. You don't have to work at it as hard as you used to. It flows because you're so connected to me that my dikaiusene flows through you. 
what happens with religion is we get stuck. So religion is good. Religious, I'm all for religious instruction. What, what many of the kids are learning about right now in Southbrook Kids is they're learning not just about the love of God, but they're also learning about rules. Rules aren't bad. But when you stop there, you get stuck at a place of development that is conscious badness and conscious goodness. And this is where many of us stop. It's actually where a lot of religious training stops. We're going to make sure that you are so aware of your badness and you're so aware of your goodness that when you do bad, you feel bad and you confess it and you do something about it. And it becomes this sin management game where I'm listing my sins, cleansing those out, and then starting back over again. But I really don't move on to any development from the inside. I'm just managing sin on the outside. And, and this is where religion stops. And this is where Jesus starts. Because he says, I'll take you beyond a system. I'll take you to the law of love. That you will have a love that has run you down. And when you surrender to that love, there begins to be a regeneration of your soul that, frankly, it makes life easier. One of the things Jesus said in Matthew 25, he said this. He says, when the Son of Man comes in all his glory and all the angels with him, he'll sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him. He'll separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothes you? When did we see you in sick and in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for the one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Now notice the same thing he's saying there as he's saying in Matthew 6. That one of the characteristics of the righteous will be, we weren't keeping score. Look at what we're doing. That this righteousness will flow from them. And they're not, hey, is everybody noticing how good I am compared to what I used to be? Is everybody giving me a grade? That one of the characteristics of the righteous will be flowing with dikaiosene. And this person has shut down this production and they've moved beyond religion. You say, this doesn't make sense. I grew up in religion. I thought the whole point was to be a religious person. I totally disagree. If you ask someone about me, I hope you tell them he is the most non-religious pastor I've ever seen. Because I do not want to get stuck where I could get stuck. And that is the approval addiction of conscious badness, conscious goodness, conscious badness, conscious goodness, letting other people give an input into where I am. And this is just absolutely, absolutely essential for our church in its future to be something that offers people something different than religion. Because I think most people today are just looking and saying, I've tried the religious game. I've tried that. It wears you out. Anne Morrill Lindbergh said the most exhausting thing in life is being insincere. That's why so much social life is exhausting. One is wearing a mask. And it's true. It's just, this is why religion is very fatiguing 
It's because you're constantly on. You're constantly putting a production on. And some of us have done it for so long, we're very unaware of it. And so how do we move into unconscious goodness? What, what are some of the basics? You could literally start doing some of these now, and then over a period of months and years, you'll start looking back and going, I'm not what I ought to be, I'm not what I'm going to be, but I'm not what I was. Here's a couple things. Number one, daily solitude. Daily solitude. Greg Ferguson famously wrote a song called The Audience of One. I live for the audience of one. One of the interesting things about detaching from social media, detaching from conversation, and having what we, one of our five S's is the first thing is solitude. Why? Because it's in solitude, in silence, that we detach ourselves from the addiction approval of others. Where we sit in front of the audience of one and say, I want to hear you say, well done. That's what I live for. My approval is only under your authority. And this is why tomorrow morning, tonight, take a few minutes. I have some couple seats in my house. Sherry has her chair in her, her office where we spend an inordinate amount of time in solitude. It's the most important part of our day where we detach. No, no input. It's quiet. Because I have a propensity as a pastor, you know, it's really weird. It's dangerous to be a pastor because you get paid to be good. It is the weirdest thing. I, we, about 11 years ago, Sherry and I took a trip to the Holy Land. Uh, the church gave us that for my sabbatical. And, and I just decided I'm not telling anyone I'm a pastor. And it was the most liberating two weeks of my life. Because I found out I really do love people. Not, even when I'm not paid to do it. I really do love people. And, and I, I just found, I was like, I needed to do that. Why? Because it's really dangerous to do anything where you get rewarded for goodness. It's not bad. It's just dangerous. And so what has to happen is you get quiet. And, you know, many mornings I'm in my basement and it's quiet and it's dark. And because I can be religious I don't even start with prayer. I just start with silence and then let gratitude lead me in to a dialogue because he's here, right? He's near. And daily solitude is absolutely, absolutely essential. Look at what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. But it, with me, it is a very small thing if I'm judged by you or any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. Isn't that interesting? He said, I'm not qualified to evaluate and affirm me. I'll just leave that to God. It is the Lord who judges me. And this is one of the great aims of solitude is that you get to that place where you go, I'm just stopping the thumbs up, thumbs down in my life. I'll just let God deal with that. I'm going to honor him. Number two is anonymous service. The more public you are, the more important that you do things anonymously that only God knows about. Now, this does not mean you, that you don't do things that people will know about, but what it does mean is that you're aware of the slide into approval of others, and so you want to hear well done from the audience. So one, you've got to do anonymous service. You've got to do some things that only God knows about in secret, Jesus said, sometimes literally, sometimes literally, 
Why? So that you can say, I'm not doing this ever for the approval of other people. Look at this, number three. This is a big one, confession of sin. Now, I realize that's, that's a religious act. I'm not talking about it as a religious act. I'm talking about it as a step toward authenticity. I am not managing my image anymore. And this is why when we talk about the five S's, the S of support is so critical. It's so that you can be in a group of people, you'll find your people where you are loved and they know your worst. They know your worst. One time, this was back in the days when I printed out the sermon on Sunday morning. I'll never forget this. I was in our church office and I had a white shirt on and I had cut myself shaving and blood went down on the white shirt and I'm printing it out and I look and I, I can see in the, the reflection, oh, darn it, there's blood on this white shirt. But sitting right there was Judy, our secretary's white out. This is worth a try. So I took the white. What happens when you put white out over blood? It just comes through brown is all it does. It looks worse. And this is one of the things about religion. Religion is about, you know, let me cover those things over. If you want to see a professional sin, go to church. Because we have mastered the art, we think, of hiding our carnality. And when we really don't hide it, do we? It's usually obvious to other people more than it is to us. But this is confession of sin is where I acknowledge fully my propensities and I grow in self-awareness. This is just, I'm, friends, I can't tell you how important that is because one of the things that will wear you out about faith is the drive to be in, the, the drive to be inconsistent because you're trying to be impressive. And I have groups of people that I've grown with down through the years, and they know my worst. I, I just, nobody, nobody has a worse one than this. This is, this is my nature outside of Christ is cruel. I'm so competitive. My mom and dad told me, you were competitive before you came out of your mother's womb. And uh, this, you'll think less of me when you hear this, but I want you to, this is one of the worst things a human being could do, I think, is I was about six years old, and I'm playing around with friends, and we're competing to see who can be most macho, and I drop a little six-week-old puppy in a stream, just because we're playing around. Now, the the puppy didn't die, but I know it. Isn't that awful? That's what I'm capable of. I know that really gives you great comfort to know that I'm... But that's, that's reality. And my friends and I were going through the 12 steps 10, 11 years ago. And when we got to step five, and when we were making our inventory of things that we'd carried shame about, and I, and I put that down. When I, one time, I dropped a little puppy in a stream. Who does that? And Todd McGowan looked at me and said, listen, you were doing the best that six-year-old could do. You have no right to judge that six-year-old boy. And when you, when you find a place where you can confess, where you can say, hey, here's the shame I'm 
carrying. And you literally have someone who looks at you and says, God's love is greater than that. You won't want to be religious ever again. You won't. There is such a latitude and a freedom when we know that we're accepted by the one who matters most. That we don't have to play act anymore. I love the story about the woman who locked her keys in her car. She was at a a store and she went back in and she asked someone, I locked the keys in my car, can you help me? And the clerk at the at the checkout, said, well, here's one of the hangers somebody left over, and she gave it to her, and the woman went out, and, and she, I, don't know what, I don't know what to do with this hanger. What do you do with the hanger? You lock your keys in your car. I don't know how to fix Jimmy the window. And she said, Lord, please help me. Send someone who can help me. She goes out to her car, and there's this really rough-looking dude out uh, walking in the parking lot. She says, sir, I'm sorry. Can, can you help me? I don't know what to do with this hanger. She take, he, he says, oh, sure, sure. He takes the hanger, he puts it in the window and pops the lock on the door. And she goes, oh, thank you so much. You're such a good person. He goes, no, I'm not. He goes, I've served time for car theft. That's why I knew. (laughs) And she goes, thank the Lord. He gave me a professional to deal with my problem. (laughs) And I want to tell you, you may not be aware of it, but you're a professional, okay? If you're in church, you're on your way to being a pro sinner. But it doesn't have to be that way. This is why the core of our church is our 12-step program. That's the, if you peel away the onion of Southbrook, you'll find our 12-step program. They are the ones who are leading us into, don't ever let this be a religious place. It's just not worth it. How many of you need another place where you got to perform? Do you really need that? Is that what you're looking for? I don't think so. One of my favorite athletes of all time was Don Meredith. He passed away a few years ago. He's known more for not just being the Dallas Cowboys quarterback in the 1960s, but also being a popular broadcaster on Monday Night Football. And years ago, there was an article written about him in Sports Illustrated, and the writer said, there's nothing more satisfying than a life well lived, unless, of course, it happens to be somebody else's life. Then it's just irritating. Take Don Meredith, who stockpiled a vast reserve of fame in several high-profile careers, and then turn his back on the public limelight. It's maddening, perverse, and totally un-American. Did you hear that? The writer's right. It's also mysterious because it goes against everything we understand about celebrity. He's as comfortable to talk to as you'd have imagined from all those years listening to him on TV. He's good company. It's just that being as secure as he is, he doesn't feel obligated to be everybody's good company. Listen to that last sentence. It's just that being as secure as he is, he doesn't feel obligated to be everyone's good company. The word that is one word that summarizes the Sermon on the Mount, if you haven't seen it yet, you'll see it, the thread that runs all the way through the Sermon on the Mount is the word security. If you look for it, you'll see it. It's like once you buy a white minivan, you'll see white minivans everywhere. Once you see this, you see that thread running all the way through. That the person who's free is not the religious person. That's probably the person who's most enslaved. But the person who is free is a person who says, I can be real 
because Jesus has given me a security that has given me the pathway to unconscious goodness. I've gotten to the point where I don't think about doing good. It's who he's made me to be. Isn't this what we want, gang? Do you really want to spend the rest of your life doing sin management? That's exhausting. But it will help you find your people to where you can live the life, as Jesus said, that is life indeed. Indeed. Let's pray. Father, in a world of likes, we struggle with approval addiction. It's probably not something we'll ever eliminate. It'll be a tension we always have to live with. But there is a way we can be set free from its tentacles, its bondage. And that is to live for the audience of one. You already know our sin. You already know our flaws. And you love us with a stubborn love. A pursuing love. So that we can live life out of love and joy and peace. And we wouldn't trade that for religion any day, would we? We wouldn't trade that. Because we want to live in something that's so much more powerful than a law-based religion. It is a love-based relationship. And I pray that for our church. I pray you make us real. Help us not to say things because it sounds spiritual. Help us not to do things because others will notice. Father, help us today. We invite you to bring us into the kingdom where only your approval matters, the audience of one. Now, some of us are going to do something that could just be a religious action or can be an authentic step of relationship to celebrate that if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. This communion. Thank you, Jesus, that you've set us free from managing our image and being who you've made us to be, warts and all. In Christ we pray, and everybody said, amen. See you next week.